Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us at Back to the Bible Canada. Today we wrap up our current series entitled, Why Christmas? with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, let's listen to today's message answering the question, Why a Savior? During this week, I've given myself to a series of addresses that begin with the word, Why? See, those of us who have been through many Christmases begin to take a number of things for granted. For instance, many churches light candles on the four Sundays leading to Christmas called the Four Sundays of Advent. Now, we do this because we're reenacting the thousands of years of God's people who are waiting and anticipating and longing for the coming of God's salvation in His Messiah. But if we should do this and forget to tell people what this thing symbolizes, if we just light the candles on four Sundays of Advent without an explanation, well, we're really telling newcomers and our children, don't ask why we do it, just accept that we do it. And whenever we stop answering the why questions, we allow Christmas to become a custom or a tradition, but it is no longer an invitation to discover the depths of our faith. And when that happens, a form of Christmas emerges without substance, which is essentially what's happened in our culture. I mean, ask the average secular Canadian or American if they celebrate Christmas, and the majority do, and ask them what it is they're celebrating or why, and the answers will range from, well, it's a tradition or a custom, or it's a great time to have a party, or it's a great transition to a new year, but most of the explanations are devoid of insight or meaning. And unless we are relentless in our why questions, that same thoughtless celebration eventually finds its way into a celebration of the Incarnation. Either we continually ask greater questions for meaning and purpose, or we degenerate into meaningless forms of tradition. The trajectory either goes in one way or the other, and for that reason I have asked us to continue to ask why. And so over this week, I've been asking you to join me in being both a child and an adult. Be a child by asking why about, well, just about everything regarding Christmas. And don't let anyone tell you just because or don't ask so many questions. Our problem has been that we haven't asked enough questions. But be an adult in a sense that we're prepared to be thoughtful and thorough regarding the kinds of answer we're satisfied with. Each Christmas we live through should offer us with a new challenge to more thoroughly and deeply dig into the meaning of the Incarnation, the the structure and historical background of the biblical birth narratives, the Old Testament rich content behind the birth of Christ, the theology of the word Incarnation, and trying to ask and answer as many why questions as we can. And so during this week, I chose five why questions. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why were his first visitors shepherds? Why was he laid in a manger? Who are the Magi? And what does their appearance really mean? And today, why is it so important that we need a Savior? Well, we're coming to Luke chapter 2, verse 11, which gives the message of the angels to the shepherds. They say, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, please notice that according to the angels, at the very time of his birth, Jesus was immediately given three titles, Savior, Christ or Messiah, and Lord, which is his deity. Now, in truth, the way the message of the angels is given tells us that his principal title is Savior. And then we're told the kind of a Savior that he is. This Savior is Christ the Lord. 
So let's start with the first or the principle of his titles, Savior. I know that for those of us who have been believers for a long time, the word Savior is a very specialized word. It it speaks of salvation, which means primarily for us the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with a father, regeneration, or, or the receiving of a new heart that loves God above all other things. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as a foretaste of what is to come and the promises of what God has prepared for all of us who believe, including eternal life. See, all of that is included in the word salvation. And as we know, all of this was accomplished for us as Christ lived and died for us and rose from the dead. And so when we hear the words, for unto you this day a Savior has been born, well, that's what we think. And and that's not wrong, for indeed, that's precisely what Christ is and why he came. So in Mark 10, verse 45, That's what Jesus said. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came. He came to lay down his life for our salvation. But to save can have a much wider meaning. It can simply mean to rescue in every sense of the word. So in the Old Testament, a savior is someone who rescues us from anything that is seen as a threat. See, when that term is applied to God, it can refer to God's deliverance from enemies or even from disease or from any form of danger. Let me try to express that wider idea in the ministry of Jesus. I'm taking this incident from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 32. After Jesus has fed the 5,000, the disciples got into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee at night while Jesus went by himself to pray. Now, a storm had come up, and they were in some trouble, and Jesus comes to them, and he's walking on the water. Now, to shorten that story for our benefit, Jesus invites Peter onto the water with him, and as he does so, Peter begins to panic and sinks into the water, and according to verse 30, he cries out, and I quote, Lord, save me. Now, please understand, he's not asking for salvation from sins or on the judgment day or receiving a new regenerate heart. Look, he's just drowning, and his attention is on something far more immediate. And in essence, much of Jesus' ministry is taken up in these immediate kinds of issues. Think about the incident Luke tells us about in Luke 18, 35 to 43. Jesus is in Jericho, and a blind man is sitting by the roadside begging. I mean, what else can he do? There's no social safety net. He has no opportunity for employment, and he begs, knowing that in the end, his life is going to end in misery. He hears Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And according to verse 38, all he can do is shout out, have mercy on me. Again, he's not thinking about the final standing on judgment day. The man lives with a level of misery that we can hardly imagine. Save me means rescue me from the horror I presently live in. And so drowning or begging on a roadside in blindness can be a metaphor for a number of life's experiences. See, I know many people who will tell me that they are drowning in a debt of financial hardship. They say they can never seem to, to get on top of things, what with a, with a heavy burden of Canadian taxes and the, and the high cost of living and the reality of their paychecks and even the reality of their own poor choices, which include personal indebtedness, all of this has left them feeling that they are financially out of control. They need a financial advisor to help them get free of this oppression. 
some of them in hope of some amazing stroke of luck or are buying lottery tickets. What they need is a savior, any savior. See, others speak of drowning in the sorrows of life. Those sorrows may have to do with illness and death and divorce and a lack of genuine caring friendship with its accompanying loneliness and feelings of inadequacy or even lack of direction. See, whatever our life experiences, the metaphor of drowning or of hopelessness begging someone to come along and help us in our situation in life. See, the Jewish people living in the time of Jesus could have identified with our common experiences. Many of them wanted salvation from the Roman government, a conquering power that dominated and humiliated them. They had lost control of their nation, and they even looked into their own history, and if they would, they would see that the ultimate insult was this, that in about 63 BC, the Jews actually invited the Romans in to help solve the problems they were having with political corruption. The Romans were supposed to be their savior, but Rome was a poor savior. Their saviors became their oppressors. So, for instance, Roman taxation and the scourge of corrupt tax collectors often robbed people of every resource they had. And so many had been reduced to trying to hide anything they had for fear the tax collector would leave them destitute. See, that was humiliating and infuriating at the same time. Furthermore, they also wanted salvation from physical hardships of life. Many saw salvation as salvation from sickness and the ravages of death. They must have found Jesus' healing ministry to be the very salvation they were looking for. Also, the prevalence of demon possession, most likely as a result of the many pagan Roman practices all around them, left them helpless in the spiritual realm. But the imagery of drowning in a sea of sorrows or or begging at the roadside is an appropriate image. People, all people can identify with the need of a savior. You see, our problem with so closely identifying salvation with just reconciliation with God sometimes leaves us with a truncated view of who Jesus actually is and what the title savior actually means. And when we come back, I'm gonna share something about the breadth of what it means for Jesus to be called a savior. As we come to our last message of the Y series, perhaps we're attempting to answer the most important question of all. Why does all of mankind need a Savior? And what is so special or necessary about Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world? Well, this issue, as we can see, was as relevant to the Jews under Rome as it continues to be today in our modern times. Let's continue to dig deeper as Dr. Neufeld helps us discover the complete meaning of why Jesus came. Thanks so much for listening today. Hopefully you've benefited richly from this one-week series called Why Christmas? Well, Dr. Neufeld has covered five crucial questions surrounding the Christmas story, including why the Magi, why Bethlehem, and many more. It's an invitation for all of us to rediscover why we celebrate the season with a childlike curiosity and interest. Don't miss your opportunity to get your copy of this great series today. You can call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. In our Why series, the final why is this. Why a Savior? And the answer is, we are all drowning, desperately begging. 
Whether it's disease or, or broken relationships or loneliness or financial hardship or, or demon possession or heartache, one thing is clear. The human race and we individually need a savior. That's why Matthew 9.36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But these sorrows and crises are only symptoms of the real problem. I want you to imagine that you're going to your doctor about some problem that you're having. You tell her that you're constantly thirsty and you feel you never get enough to drink. Can she do something about your thirst? Maybe there's a drink she can recommend or, or maybe you don't drink enough. Oh, by the way, there's a second problem. Anytime you get a cut, it seems to take forever to heal. You need some kind of salve to help you with the scrapes and scratches to heal better. Oh, you just remembered a third problem. You're having problems with your eyesight, and it seems to be blurring, and you need a good ophthalmologist. And your doctor says, you know what? Your problem isn't thirst or eyesight or, or slow healing of wounds. Yes, that's what you're experiencing, and we're going to take that very seriously. But until we heal the deeper problem, the other ones will just keep being there. Your problem? Diabetes. And that's going to be the thing that we'll treat. Today, many of us are like the person who is never able to see beyond the symptoms to the actual disease. We need a Savior, all right, but we need a Savior in the most profound sense imaginable. We don't need a Savior who only covers over our symptoms, but one who can get at the very heart of the problem. And that's where our specialized sense of the use of the word salvation comes in. If all we ever get saved from is the immediate, from debt, from disease, from loneliness, from sorrow, eventually all those things come back. We need salvation in an ultimate sense, and that's clearly what Christ came to bring. And that's also why we don't pass over the symptoms of our ultimate disease lightly. We don't say, oh, you're struggling with poverty, but don't worry about that. We want to talk to you about your sins and reconciliation with God. See, salvation means we care about the whole person and seek to bring salvation to every area of our humanity. But any salvation that does not treat the disease itself, that is, a life that has fallen from God, a life that's drowning in sin and rebellion against the Creator, when we ignore that, well, that salvation ceases to save us in the ultimate sense. But remember, I had mentioned that in a time of extreme political and religious corruption, the Jews had actually invited the Romans into their culture as their savior. And that savior became their oppressor. So what kind of a savior is Jesus? Well, according to the announcement of the angels to the shepherds, this savior, they said, is Christ the Lord. Two titles, Christ and the Lord. Let's start with the Christ. Now, I know what I'm about to say next is, is going to be painfully obvious to some, but, but trust me, it's not painfully obvious to others. Christ is not Jesus' last name. I remember some years ago listening to a secular radio broadcast at Christmas time, and they were, they were talking about the great figures of history, and, and they mentioned Mahatma Gandhi and Winston Churchill, and then this person says, and Jesus Christ as well. You know, some of us have become so accustomed to Jesus being referred to in that way, we hardly even wince and say, wait a minute, you've completely misunderstood. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title. Kind of like saying, Prime Minister Trudeau. Prime Minister is not his first name. It's his title. 
Perhaps we would be helped by saying Jesus, who is the Christ, or Jesus, who is the long-anticipated Old Testament hope of the Messiah. That Jesus is called the Christ is central to his ministry. The Greek term Christos is simply a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. Literally, it means the anointed one. See, anointing is very much like crowning someone. It is to be bestowed on someone. It's a title given. To say Jesus is the Christ is say that God the Father has given him a title or a name that is above every title that can be bestowed upon anyone. This one is God's chosen one. This is God's king. God the Father chose Jesus the Son to be the king of the entire human race. That's what Christ actually means. Now back to the announcement of the angels. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, saving you from the ruined human condition. And this Savior is God's choice as king over the world, and he is also the Lord. Now, Lord is the most unique title of all. It has to be explained. Somewhere around 150 to maybe 130 BC, a group of 70 Bible scholars completed a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek because so many Jews no longer understood the Hebrew. This translation was called the Septuagint. Now, here's where things get really interesting. Every time those scholars translated the name of God, often called the tetragrammaton, which means, you know, it had four letters, Y-H-W-H. It's a word that many Jews refused to speak because the law forbade them from misusing the name of God in a common manner. And so whenever the name of God was used in the Old Testament, the translators of the Septuagint translated that word as kurios, or Lord. Uh, the New Testament, when quoting the Old Testament, because remember, the New Testament was written in Greek, and it would often quote from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was called the Septuagint. So when Paul writes that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is in fact alluding to Isaiah 45, verse 23, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Yahweh is God. So, in fact, the New Testament says that Lord means that Jesus Christ shall be called by the name of Yahweh, or the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, the name of God himself. So, on the day when we are promised a Savior by the angels, we are told what kind of a Savior we have. He is Christ the Lord, or to put it another way, he is the long-expected king of the world who is God himself, who bears the name of God. And that's why Jesus was born of a virgin. The very nature of salvation demands that the great Savior, the king who is destined to rule the earth spiritually and physically and politically and judicially. This is God himself stepping into the human race. Only God himself can save the human race in an ultimate way. And so both Matthew and Luke, which, by the way, are the only two books in our Bible that actually chronicle the birth of Jesus, make so much of the fact that he is born of a virgin. 
They use words like before they, that is, Joseph and Mary came together, or Joseph knew her not. This was all said to indicate that the birth of Jesus was not the result of a human sperm, the sperm of Joseph penetrating the egg of Mary. Instead, the fact that he was born of a woman indicates that Jesus is in fact fully human, but the fact that he was born without a human father indicates that he is also fully God. And I hope that's why in this last of the why series, why a savior and what kind of a savior and and who is the savior, we can see that Christmas presents us with a series of mysteries that require a great deal more why questions than one Christmas can possibly answer. What is the nature of fully God and fully man? Since Jesus remains fully God and fully man for eternity, what is the nature of our God? And what is the advantage of having a Jesus both fully human and fully God? How can Jesus be both at the same time? Why, why, why? See, let's not stop asking for more information, more insight, more depth, more everything. Let's resolutely refuse to let Christmas degenerate into mere tradition and custom. And let's look forward to each Christmas by growing more deeply in these words. God became a man, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What a fitting end to this Christmas series. I hope that it has helped all of us prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate in a few weeks that great event in history, the arrival of Jesus Christ to our world. Christmas is indeed the time when we pause and reflect on the real meaning of this season. We understand why we need a Savior to redeem us fully from the inside out. And we understand why Jesus is the only true Savior who can accomplish salvation. Let us continue to meditate on these truths and perhaps ask ourselves how we can help those around us discover this message for the very first time. That concludes our series today, but be sure to tune in again next week as Dr. Neufeld revisits a series called Christmas Unplugged, The Truth Retold. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld. You know, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we approach another Christmas season, we're reminded of what it is that we celebrate, the coming of the Redeemer. On today's program, we've been reminded of this question of why a Savior? You know, as Christians, we've been called not only to believe and live out the gospel, but we also share and proclaim it. And as a ministry, we've been given an incredible privilege to respond to this calling through teaching the Bible on the air every day. During the Christmas season, we become increasingly aware of the significance of this privilege. This past year has been filled with blessing. Daily, we receive notes and emails reminding us of the life-changing power of telling the story of Jesus. But we are also very aware that we could not do this on our own. December is the most critical time of the year for Back to the Bible financially. One-fifth of our entire year's giving happens between now and the end of the year. And these resources are critical as we plan the year ahead. So I want to ask you, will you stand with us? 
Your gift is vital as we work toward our year-end ministry goal of $390,000. So will you join us for the great work that is still to be accomplished? Help us to stir a spiritual revival in our land through the teaching of God's Word, the greatest story ever heard. To donate, please visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.